So 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, we've been walking through this letter of the Apostle Peter to Christians, uh, churches throughout the area of Asia Minor um, since the beginning of this year. So we started this in January, and uh, we will we come to the conclusion of it today. So this is the last uh, of our messages in 1 Peter. Uh, I, I hope that it's been... Um, encouraging to you the truths that we've encountered over and over in these verses have been uh, strengthening to me to my soul I hope they've been that to you as well good reminders about what Christ has accomplished for us uh, what salvation awaits us um, and uh, and preparation and equipping for the hard road that that lies ahead and so of course the theme throughout this letter has been uh, looking to uh, the heavenly reward, the inheritance that God is keeping for us that we are sure to receive as we persevere in faith through hardships and trials and suffering uh, that come our way because of our faith in Christ. And so these last verses uh, appropriately fit right in with that theme. And in some ways, Peter sort of summarizes uh, what he's been saying. <clears throat> and so you will not be surprised to see uh, the same themes emerging in these verses. Yet, I find that there's uh, some really practical, helpful uh, exhortation and warning here uh, for us that, to keep in mind as we uh, travel this pathway, this treacherous road, uh, as the book of Acts says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, as we walk through these troubles and these trials, um, with our eye on this future that's to come, there are three things that Peter calls us to remember. You might say that it's answering the sort of implied question, how will we safely make it home? How will we safely make it through this treacherous journey to glory with Christ? And he gives us three uh, exhortations along those lines as the letter closes. So let me read for you verses 8 through 14. And, uh, and then we'll take these one piece at a time, beginning in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Praise God for his word. So three exhortations that I can see here in how we can make it safely to glory, how we'll make it safely home through this treacherous pathway. Here's the first one. Remember your enemy. Remember your enemy. 
He warns us here in verses 8 and 9 that we have an adversary. That is someone who is set against us. His heart is against us. His purposes are opposing us. And he will actively seek to not just derail us, but he even says to devour us. Remember your enemy. So he gives us a couple of words here in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Both of these words uh, uh, always occur in, in context of the end, right? The, the, the return of Christ, the day of judgment, in light of the day of judgment drawing near, be sober-minded, be watchful, be aware. And this, of course, is the context of this letter and where Peter has very recently been in, in the recent verses speaking to us about the coming day that Christ will come and he will bring judgment to the world, to the living and the dead. And those who are in Christ will be saved from the wrath of God, and those who have rejected Christ will be condemned. And so in light of the coming judgment, be ready, be aware, be serious. That word sober-minded really means serious. Take seriously the life that we live and the dangers that lie ahead. This is the third time in the letter that Peter has used this very phrase and given us this exhortation. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, he said the same thing. Back in chapter 4, verse 7, once again, he said, be sober-minded. In that case, it was for the sake of your prayers, right? So that uh, our prayers would be answered and that our prayers would be serious, right? That we would use prayer in the way that God intends as a a, a means of reinforcement uh, in battle. Um, so be sober-minded, be watchful, be aware. It's so easy for us just to be lazy, distracted, complacent, unaware of the dangers that lurk around us, ahead of us. And if we're not aware, we will fall right into the traps that the devil is laying for us. And so you see he introduces our adversary, the devil. Your adversary, the devil. The devil here functions as a, a proper noun for Satan. Satan is, uh, was an angel that God created to serve him, and he rebelled against God. In fact, led a rebellion in heaven, and God cast uh, him and the angels that had followed him uh, into hell, a space he created specifically for these fallen angels and as a place of judgment. And since that time, Satan has waged war against God. And if he can't really hurt God personally, directly, because let's face it, Satan doesn't have nearly the kind of power that God has. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to get to his kids. And so Satan targets and attacks the people of God. He targets and attacks Christians, people who belong to God, and here, listen to the way Peter describes what he does. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. His heart is, is set against us. He is intent and persistent and relentless in his pursuit of Christians to devour us. He wants to devour followers of Jesus. Now, this is not a toothless warning. 
we believe that those who, who belong to Christ, and as Peter has celebrated throughout this letter, those who belong to Christ will be safely kept until the end. He is preserving his people to receive the salvation that is coming. <clears throat> but because we believe that, because the scriptures teach that, we sometimes come to warnings like this and don't know what to do with them. And so we kind of brush them aside like, it's not really that important. Okay, there's an enemy, the devil, he doesn't like us, but what's the worst that can happen, right? Um, maybe it's not really all that dangerous. But it is possible for someone who believes himself to be a Christian to be led astray and devoured by the devil and thus to fail to persevere in faith to the end. You may remember that in the very beginning of this letter, in 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 5, Peter said that Christians are being guarded by God for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. But he also told us uh, the means of that preservation is faith. In 1 Peter 1, 5, he says um, that we are, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ must persevere in faith to the end. They must continue believing in Christ and trusting in God, entrusting their lives and their eternity to him, believing that his word is true, staking their lives upon what he says. And in doing that, by persevering in faith and by continuing in our trust in God, we demonstrate that we are truly those who have been born again. Because as the letter began in verse 3, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we don't make ourselves born again. God, in his sovereign uh, mercy, causes sinners to be born again. And we show ourselves to be truly his people by continuing in the faith. There are those who appear for a time to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus. But then something happens, life gets in the way, hardship or pain or uh, burdens come, and they walk away. Perhaps you know somebody that's been in that position, and it causes some concern and some uh, confusion. I thought that somebody who was saved would always be, uh, you know, kept to the end. Or maybe it doesn't matter that they seem to have walked away. Maybe God would keep them anyway. The truth of the New Testament that's repeated over and over is that the way the means of our preservation, the means by which God keeps us to the end, is through faith. It's through the active, continuing faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. And so we should not see a warning like this, that Satan is looking for somebody to devour and go, eh, that's not really that dangerous. Because we can deceive ourselves. We can be self-deceived and believe that we really belong to him when, in fact, by our abandoning of the truth, by our being led astray away from Christ and his word, we demonstrate that we were not his, as 
The Apostle John says in one of his letters, they went out from us because they were not truly of us. That's a reality that many people, I, I believe far more than we want to admit, uh, experience as people who think that they're Christians. They think that they're good with God. Maybe because they walked an aisle in a church when they were a kid and they're banking on that sort of act of obedience or belief that happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago to just get them through no matter how they live, no matter what they believe today. And that's not the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament is Christians are preserved by persevering in faith. That's a really important uh, reality for us to see. So the devil is very serious about his attacks. Because if he can find someone who is, at least believes himself to be a Christian, and get him off track by devouring his faith, then he has, uh, then he has successfully interrupted the path um, to glory for someone. So, we should take this seriously. <clears throat> Don't think that there is no real spiritual danger in the vigilance of our enemy to prowl, attack, and devour God's people. Well, how might he do this? I, I'm suggesting three ways here. These are not particularly in the text. Uh, these are just as I'm thinking about fleshing this out. How might he seek to uh, prowl and attack and devour us? Well, one of those ways would be to catch you off guard with suffering. And I think in the context of this letter, that's maybe the chief thing that Peter has in his mind. If you are not prepared to suffer, if you are not ready for the hardship that comes into your life, then when it comes, you're going to go, man, this is not what I signed up for. Right? I thought following Jesus was going to make everything better. I thought it was going to make life easy, and I can't handle this. I'm out. So if he can uh, catch you off guard, if he can find you unprepared for suffering, then believe me, he will use that opportunity to get you off the track and devour you. He might place, number two, temptations in your path, stumbling blocks, things for you to fall over that get you off track, that lead you into a ditch. If we're following a path of righteousness, we're following a path to glory that leads through trouble. If there are roadblocks and there are things that will trip over in the way, these are our own temptations. These are opportunities to sin. It might be the temptation to uh, gossip and slander or to think uh, ill of somebody else. It might be temptations toward, uh, toward um, pleasures that are forbidden by God in his word or outside the boundaries that he's given uh, for, for human beings. It could be any number of ways that we're tempted to sin, that we're tempted to, uh, to follow our own path, our own pleasure, instead of the glory of God. And if Satan can put things in our way to derail us, then he will do that. We need to be aware that he will seek to put temptation in our path. And the final one that I'm, that I'm suggesting here is that he may plant seeds of doubt and discouragement. These are some of the enemy's most powerful weapons against us. Doubt and discouragement. That's how he started with Adam and Eve, right? In the garden. When he came to them, he said, Did God really say that you would die if you ate this fruit? So he calls into question what God even said, the, the truth of God's words. And then he begins to say, 
to, to question even the intentions in God's heart. Actually, he knows that you'll be like him if you eat this. And so that's why he doesn't want you to eat the fruit. So he begins to call into question the character of God. And if Satan can do that to us, if he can get us to doubt the power of God, the goodness of God, the truth of God's word, that is a powerful means of leading his people astray or leading off the path those who, at least for a time, have uh, been uh, following the path of, of faith and righteousness. Discouragement, weariness, but leading us to believe that we do not have what it takes. We do not have the resources available to us to carry on and continue uh, through the challenges of this life. Again, through suffering and hardship that comes into our lives, discouragement comes right along with it if we're not looking to the Lord. So if we get our eyes off of him and we start to doubt God's goodness, start to doubt God's character, start to doubt his word, then we find ourselves quickly in that place of discouragement and despair. We don't have what it takes. There's nothing here. God can't help me. God doesn't care about me. It's not even worth it. And we give up. And I think we see that happening uh, in, in a lot of places, in a lot of people. Pretty high-profile people who end up sort of giving up on their faith um, in doubt and discouragement. So these are some ways that the devil might attack you. He could attack you in all kinds of different ways. These are, this is not an exhaustive list. Satan is not limited to these three ideas about how he might get in your way and seek to devour you. But beware. Remember your enemy. If you are not aware, if you are not ready, you're not equipped, you will be easy prey for him. Don't be easy prey for the devil. So he gives us uh, an exhortation here. In response, know that you have this enemy who's after you. What should you do? Resist him. Resist. Resist. This doesn't just mean play defense and like, you know, push him off when he comes. This is, a, this is an attack. This is an offensive strategy. Fight against him. Resist the devil. Fight against the devil. How? He gives us two ways. Firm in faith and knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the first thing is the answer to uh, Satan's attacks and the way to sort of offensively resist the devil is faith. The answer is to deepen, to cultivate a confident faith in Jesus Christ. The bigger that Jesus is in our view... The, the less room there is in the frame for Satan and his tactics. The bigger that Jesus appears to us, the more glorious that we see him, the stronger we believe him to be, the more precious we find Jesus, the less teeth the attacks of the devil will have in our lives. So that's the first thing to know. How do I resist the devil? <laughs> Cultivate faith in Jesus. You don't have to become an expert on Satan. You don't have to become an expert on, you know, demonology. What do demons do? How do they operate? And there are people who kind of go into that, uh, what I consider kind of a rabbit trail, right? Trying to figure out how Satan works and they might be inclined to see demon activity behind every, uh, behind every bush, right? Behind every flat tire. Oh no, Satan's out to get me. Could be they'll use that uh, in, in your life, but... We don't need to become an expert on Satan or to become paranoid about seeing Satan everywhere. We need to be aware of his attacks, and we need to have a stronger faith in Jesus. Cultivate faith in Christ. And I love what um, 
I love what Tom Schreiner says um, in, in his commentary on, on this verse. He says this, The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if we do not fear his ferocious bark, we will never be consumed by his bite. I, that is fantastic. The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. Listen, Satan is already lost, and he knows it. We read back in 1 Peter chapter 3, the end of that chapter, that all powers and authorities have been subjected to Christ, right? Christ has already, by his death and resurrection, secured victory for himself and his kingdom and his people. And Satan knows it. That he's already lost the battle. He's just trying to take as many people with him on his way down. But if we remember that this enemy is already defeated and that the Christ that we know and serve is infinitely more powerful than this defeated enemy, then we will not need to be consumed by his bite. So stand firm in your faith. And then finally, on this point, he gives us the the encouragement of solidarity with other suffering Christians, right? He says, the same kind of suffering is experienced by uh, your brotherhood throughout the world. The brotherhood is all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, who belong to the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And all over the world, wherever they are, they're suffering. There's hardship that comes into their lives because of Christ, because of their faith in him. And Peter intends for this knowledge and this solidarity to be strengthening, to be comforting to us. When we remember that Christians throughout the world are similarly opposed and persecuted because of their faith, our suffering becomes a kind of confirmation that we are truly God's people. I read a little quote by Tim Keller uh, earlier this week that said, if you are always persecuted, you're probably a jerk. If you are never persecuted, you're probably a coward. Uh, I thought that was a really helpful little pithy way to express the truth that if we're faithful to Christ, there will be persecution at some level that comes into our lives. Now, there's a possibility that we are inviting that unnecessarily by being rude and obnoxious. Um, And there's the possibility, on the other hand, that we are so quiet with our faith or we're so like shy about admitting that we believe in Jesus or believe the Bible or whatever. We just don't want to engage with things that we, we never really feel persecuted, but it's because we're not really ever actually standing up for Christ or, or demonstrating that we belong to him. So suffering for Christ is a kind of a marker of identity, right? We are his if we suffer. And if we look at Christians around the world experiencing the same thing, there's a, there's a brotherhood, there's a solidarity that comes from that. Yes, this is hard. Yes, I'm being persecuted for my faith. But guess what? Christians everywhere are experiencing this too. We can do this in Christ. By his grace, we can persevere. So, how are we going to make it safely home? Number one, remember your enemy. Be aware of his attacks and resist him. Number two, remember your calling. Remember your calling. See these this in verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's here's the simple truth underlying this exhortation. 
God has promised to hold you fast till the end. The means is persevering faith, but God's grace undergirds every moment of that. God's power strengthens our faith and gives us the ability to continue and carry on. And he promises to hold us fast until the end. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is a promise of God. Take it to heart. Take it to the bank. God will restore you. God will strengthen you. God will confirm you after we've suffered a little while. What precious words of promise. Now, this phrase right here, suffering a little while, um, it doesn't necessarily feel like a little while. And I don't think it means that just a short season in your earthly life and then the suffering will end and you can continue like you normally do. I think he's looking at the entirety of our life on earth. Even if it's nothing but suffering. Even if our life on earth was back-to-back pain, persecution, and hardship. I think he would still say that we've only had to suffer for a little while. Why? Because in comparison to the eternal glory in Christ, in which we will share, the suffering that we endure in this life does not even bear mention. I'm reminded of two other verses of, uh, uh, by, from Paul's pen. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that this light momentary affliction is storing up for us a weight of glory, an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. Same idea is at work here. So Peter says you suffer for a little while and then the eternal glory in Christ will come. And Paul says even more actively than that, that the, the suffering that we're enduring is itself building that glory. It's, it's storing up for us this eternal glory in Christ that we will experience. And so in contrast, in comparison with the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the eternal joy of being in his presence, in his kingdom, with sin gone, and pain gone, and tears dried, the suffering that we have to face now, even if it lasts a lifetime, is not worth comparing. Paul says that exact thing in Romans 8.18. He says that in the light of the glory that's to be revealed, the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared There isn't a comparison to make. It's not like if you're trying to put on the scales, all right, present suffering over here, eternal glory over here, which one might weigh out? Paul's like, it's not even worth making that comparison. The sufferings in this day, in this life, are not even worth trying to compare with the glory that will be revealed, the glory in which we will share. This is what we've been called to. When God set his saving love upon you, he called you to himself, and in so doing, he called you to eternal glory. That is your destination. That is where you belong. This is not home. How much time and effort and money do we spend trying to make this earth feel like home? It's not home. 
Home is glory with Christ. This is a far country. This is a distant land that we have to travel through as sojourners, as exiles, as aliens, while we wait for the glory that's to come that he has called us to. I love this phrase, the God of all grace will himself, not somebody else, he's not sending a messenger to do this, he's not delegating this task, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The net effect of these words, this restoring, confirming, strengthening, establishing, everything that's been broken will be brought back together. We've been confirmed, we've validated. I know it's been hard, but this is worth it. Your mind will be strengthened to, to endure, will be established, will be set on a firm foundation. The net effect of these words is clear. God will surely save you. God will surely save you. You, have been cho- you who have been chosen by God, who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, will surely receive the full and final salvation purchased by Jesus when the day of judgment comes. If you are in Christ, you need not fear the judgment to come because he hasn't called you for judgment. He's called you for glory, eternal glory in Christ. Note one more time that the interplay between these promises of God and his exhortations to Christians to remain faithful, to persevere in faith, just as we spoke of earlier with the warnings about the devil and his seeking to devour, and the the work of God to preserve his people, and the means by which he preserves us is our perseverance in faith. Listen to Tom Schreiner on this, to quote him one more time. He says, The God who has given such promises also uses exhortations to provoke his people to be faithful until the last day. The exhortations, that is these, be faithful, hang in there, resist the devil, those kind of exhortations. The exhortations are the very means by which God's promises are secured. And indeed, God in his grace grants believers the strength to carry out the exhortations. How will we resist the devil? By God's strength. How will we be inspired or motivated to resist the devil? By God's warning. Resist the devil because he wants to devour you. It's the warning and the exhortation that sort of alerts us to the task. We need to stay true. We need to stay faithful. And it's the strength that God gives to each believer to actually carry out those exhortations, to resist the devil and to persevere in faith. And fittingly, praise is Peter's reply. Look in verse 11. In response to all of God's grace, the God of all grace, establishing, confirming, strengthening, and comforting you, the promise of salvation to come, praise is the right response. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That formula there is known as a doxology, which is a statement of praise. To him be dominion. That is authority and rule. He is the king. He is the one with power. He is the one with authority forever and ever. And this doesn't mean, I hope he keeps dominion forever. This isn't like a wish. May he have glory forever, dominion forever. This is a statement. This is a declaration of faith. 
He alone has dominion forever. Praise God. He is the one who chose us for this salvation and who purchased it for us in Christ and who preserves us through faith to receive it in the end. And so the right response is, praise God, praise God, praise God. Matt Redman has a phrase that he says, it's in at least one of his songs, and he says it if you ever listen to him uh, talking about songwriting or worship. He has this phrase he says over and over, which is that in the Christian life, we are to be continually breathing in God's grace and breathing out God's praise. Breathe in his grace, breathe out his praise. That's always the right response to God's grace to us. And these promises of final and full salvation are surely grace to us to persevere and endure to the end. Praise God. Remember your calling. So remember your enemy, remember your calling, and the final exhortation I see uh, is this. Remember your identity. Remember your identity. So he's got a word here for us. As the, even in the sort of just the greeting, the salutation portion of the letter, he's got a strong truth for us to remember. Uh, so don't, don't overlook end greetings like this in New Testament letters. Uh, he just starts to name some people that I don't know. Sylvanus, who's that? She's at Babylon. What does that mean? Mark, my son? I don't know. I don't care who that is. That doesn't mean anything to me. And so we can kind of brush past these things. But Peter is wrapping very strong and important truths into even this greeting at the end. So uh, the first, by, first thing he says is, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly with you. So Sylvanus uh, is sometimes called Silas. This is the same guy that was a, co- a companion of Paul on some of his missionary journeys. We'll read about him in, uh, in the book of Acts, in sort of the second half or so of the book. Uh, and when Peter says, by Sylvanus, I've written you, he doesn't mean Sylvanus wrote the letter for me, um, or, or that he necessarily even helped him write the letter, although there are some who think maybe Syl- Sylvanus or Silas sort of acted as like a secretary for Peter. Maybe. Um, but I think what it really means is that Sylvanus is the one who is delivering the letter on his behalf to the churches in Asia Minor. So as he's written this letter and completed it, he is sending it with Sylvanus. Because remember, didn't have email, right? He couldn't be like, and send. Now every church in Asia Minor has this letter uh, in his inbox ready to be read. They had to carry a paper letter (laughs) miles and miles uh, to these churches. And so Sylvanus is the one that's given the task of carrying this letter on behalf of the apostle to these churches in Asia Minor, and he would spend a little bit of time with them, have the letter read aloud to their congregation, and then he'd take the letter with him and carry it on to the next church. Um, Just as an aside here, how kind has God been to us to give us his word uh, in so many ways and so accessible to us, uh, to be in a situation where you had to wait for somebody to come to you and read the letter aloud, and then it went away with them, and you had to bank on what you remembered being said. So uh, we, we, are in, we are embarrassed by the riches uh, that we have uh, in God's word available to us. So Sylvanus carries this letter and he reminds him, he reminds the readers of his purpose. So he says, I have written briefly to you doing what? Exhorting and declaring. This is the true grace of God. And I think this probably refers to all that he's said in the letter. The fact of your having been chosen by God and belonging to him, having been born again by the Spirit and having this inheritance that's to come, that's being guarded for you and, and the, all the hardships that you have, to in, you have to go through in order to 
to get there. I think all of this is saying this is the grace of God, this gospel, this message of salvation and hope. So I'm reminding you, I'm exhorting you, I'm declaring it. This is true, and you need to live by it. In fact, he says, stand firm in it. Once again, that sounds very similar to be sober-minded, be watchful, stand here. Don't drift from this. Don't forget this. Don't start to compromise on, on things that seem hard to believe or hard to hold because there's pressure around you to, to let these things go. Stand firm in it. There's the purpose of the letter and it's something of a summary of, uh, of its meaning. Now, I want to point out to you an important detail that's easy to miss here in verse 13. And because it's a little strange, you might be like, I don't know who is at Babylon. What does that mean? You might just brush right past it. But I think Peter's doing something very intentional here. And so you've got a couple of blanks. If you're following along in that, uh, that sheet with the blanks, you've got some blanks to fill out. And there's this. So when he says in verse 13, she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Here's what I think is going on. Babylon is a reference to Rome. Babylon is a metaphor in in Peter's language here for the city of Rome. So if you remember a little bit of Old Testament history, the people of Israel in the 6th century BC were conquered by the Babylonian Empire and taken into captivity in Babylon. So the people of God, no longer in Jerusalem, no longer in the land of Palestine, where, where God had set them, as judgment, they've been carried away in exile to Babylon. Peter here refers to Rome, which is the most powerful city in the world at this time, and from which Peter writes, and he refers to it as Babylon. In other words, this is not our home. We are in exile here, in Rome specifically, but even more broadly than that, throughout the Roman world, throughout, excuse me, throughout the Roman Empire, where there would be these persecutions and hardships coming. So Babylon stands in as a metaphor for Rome. So she who is at Babylon, I don't believe this is a particular person that he's sort of naming in a mysterious way. I think this is the church in Rome. This is the body of believers who are in Rome, where Peter is serving and ministering and writing from. And so Peter here is sending greetings to the various churches in Asia Minor from the church in Rome in this sort of veiled way. She who is at Babylon, sends you, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. That means the church of Jesus Christ in the city of Rome greets you, right? So he's sending greetings along. Why do it in such a strange way? Not Why not just say, all the other Christians in Rome say hello to. Why, why this kind of veiled metaphorical language? Well, here, here's what I think is going on. When he says in this phrase, uh, who is likewise chosen, I think he's hearkening back. Um, uh, he wants the reader to see likewise means just as we are. So they, she who was at Babylon, namely the church in Rome, has been chosen by God just as we have. We have been chosen by God in the same way. And so likewise, she is chosen by God just as you are. So I think the net effect of all this is, to, is supposed to hearken us back in our memories to the way that he started this letter. Let me, oh, actually, I have a camera here. So let me read for you the first two verses of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those 
who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion being just the scattering of Christians throughout the region of Asia Minor. And then he names places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Bithynia, right? According to, right? Not that they're scattered according to, but they are the elect exiles of God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. That's how he began this letter. That's how he addressed the letter. I am writing to the elect, the chosen people of God who are exiles. That is, are not living where they belong. They're not at home. Not meaning that there's a different place on earth that they should have been, but meaning that heaven, that eternal glory is their home. And so where they are is an alien country, right? And so they are exiles. And so the way that he sends greetings from the church in Rome is provides a bookend to this letter. He's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and he's sending them greetings from the elect people of God in Rome, that is, who are in exile, right? You're in exile, we're in exile, all Christians are living in exile. And so the, the fact that Peter begins and ends his letter with a reminder of their status as God's chosen people living in exile is a powerful word of encouragement for us as well. No matter what struggles and hardships we face, we face them as God's chosen people, called to an eternal, imperishable glory, and given the abiding grace of God to carry us through these various trials and into the full and final salvation that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what he is been saying from the start, and that's how he wraps this letter. Remember who you are. You are God's chosen people. He has set his love upon you. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope, born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God. He has called you to eternal glory in Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity. Remember who you are as you walk through the hardships and challenges of this life. And that's how he wraps up this letter, except by telling them to greet one another with the kiss of love. Clearly, he was not living uh, in the days of coronavirus. We would not recommend that you kiss each other. Maybe a wave. Peace to all who are in Christ. Peace. How poignant that he ends with with the, the prayer for peace. May peace be yours who are in Christ, because these days are hard. The season is hard. The road is rugged, and there will be pain and suffering along it. But may the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, no matter what you face. Friends, may we never forget who we are. May we never forget his presence, never forget his precious promises. And may we, by his grace, faithfully live in these days as exiles on our way to our true home in glory.